I love documentaries. They're the reason I got into journalism. I've had the chance to make a few of my own, and I think they're an incredible opportunity for us to see the worlds of others. So I'm so excited to tell you that this week's episode is a collaboration with the Open City Documentary Festival, which will be happening this week. And to celebrate, I'm speaking to filmmaker Sindhu Tirumalaisamy about her documentary, The Lake and the Lake, as well as festival director Chloe Trainer about what it means to hold the festival in these challenging times. I reached out to Open City because they bring together such incredible storytellers from across the globe and from different disciplines. And with the festival being moved online, they are more accessible than ever before. The films themselves can be viewed uh, to those watching from a UK IP address, and there are many things available for international audiences. There will be details of how you can take part in the festival in the show notes, and Chloe will explain how you can access um, the different films and industry events in her section of the interview. The documentary world is very close to my heart. It's an industry I've either been in or adjacent to my whole career. If you're not from the documentary world, I hope this gives you a small glance into the festival scene, as well as speaking to a filmmaker about what it is like to make a documentary. And on that note, I'm going to start with my conversation with filmmaker Sindhu Tirumalaisamy on her documentary, The Lake and the Lake, which is nominated for the Emerging Filmmaker Award. While I was watching the film in preparation and reading up a bit more about Sindhu, I noticed that she had calls herself an artist. So I started off the interview with just asking her a bit about what that title means to her. Hi, Sindhu. Thank you so much for joining me on Storyteller. Um, before we head into discussing your film, The Lake and the Lake, I wanted to ask you if you could tell me about the first time or the, the first time you called yourself an artist or the first time you remember sort of taking on the mantle of, of being an artist. Yeah, thank you for having me, Lisa. And um, that's like an interesting question. I don't know if I remember a specific moment, but I do know that um, because I was a student studying film, um, film and video, it became at some point, uh, I think, like important to like distinguish also that I wasn't necessarily like going into the film industry. And so I wouldn't um, I think there were several occasions where I didn't feel comfortable saying I was a filmmaker because that implied something. And um, I think over time, I think I've grown to um, find that it's better to call myself an artist making films rather than a filmmaker um, because it implies a different relationship to production. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be curious to know um, if you do have a background in sound because the sound design on the film is really remarkable and I just as as a as a more traditional well I don't want to say more traditional but as a person who kind of went into film via the tv route my sound sense was always terrible the sound of my films was always very you know the the maybe old school doc thing of it being a bit slapdash and a bit of you know last thought um and just the sound on the film is is gorgeous so yeah I wanted to see if you if you did have a 
do you have a special love for sound or training in sound? Yeah, I do. I I mean, I work as a sound designer and um, a lot of the work that I do is also uh, just in sound. Um, and so a lot some of the earlier projects that I worked on were also like films that didn't have images they just had sound and text and so like I really um love thinking about like sound image relationships and trying to like um or not even trying I think it's just I'm inclined to um kind of privilege sound and and working through um thinking about sound and listening and talking to people as the way I orient my work yeah Okay. And um, can you tell, tell me a bit about sort of your, your, your journey into this type of work? Did you, did you always have a, you know, an ear for sound or an eye for uh, pictures or, you know, did you, I'd be interested to know how you came into doing this kind of work. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, <laughs> I honestly <laughs> ask myself this sometimes. Um, I, was um, I was always interested in um, reading, writing, um, listening, um, but actually watching films was something that came much like later in my life. Um, mm. I mean, I grew up watching a lot of um, like you know popular films, um, but I never really imagined that I would be a filmmaker until I entered um, college. Um, and there I, it just so happened that, um, all of the courses that I was taking, the ones that I really enjoyed were always offered by faculty who were in the film department. And so I thought, oh, maybe this is the closest because I'm enjoying what they're talking about. Maybe I'll enjoy what they do as well. Uh, (laughs) And so I kind of went into it like that. Yeah. So your film, um, The Lake and the Lake, mm-hmm. is, am I right? It's nominated for the Emerging Filmmaker category at Open City Dock. Yeah, right? it is. Yes. Okay, great. So could you tell me a little bit about, um, do you want to just sort of briefly tell me about how you came to make the film and uh, what it's about for, for those listening? Yeah, um, so this is a film that is made in Bangalore. It's the city that I uh, used to live in before I moved to the U.S. And um, is really, it's the film is shot around a lake that's in the kind of central, um, is in a central part of the t- city, um, surrounded by uh, tech parks and a kind of IT corridor. Um, so it's like a very um, densely uh, developed part of the city. It's also, you know, um, part of the city that kind of represents its identity as um, as a tech hub in like the Silicon Valley of India, kind of. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of aspirations attached to this part of the city. And, um, and the lake, um, Belandur, is... Um, is so polluted that um, it's producing this toxic foam. Um, But beyond the actual sort of like material effects and the pollution, um, you know, there is also a kind of like a crisis of um, wanting to save the image of the lake. Yeah. Um, And that's what really the film responds to. Um, is kind of destabilizing and like questioning what is that image and what does it um, 
you know, what does it take to um, to uphold it and what is um, being left out in order for it to make sense. Mm. Um, and so through that, the film kind of delves into questions of like, what is nature, what becomes naturalized in the context of urban India. Mm. And can you tell us a bit about the process of, of making the film? Like how much time did you spend there? Sort of how did you find um, the different shots? Um, yeah, so I actually lived very close to this lake for a number of years um, and would pass it, um, you know, kind of in an everyday way. Um, and just as I was leaving Bangalore was when the foam really like started to um, become like very visible and um, was also like, a, you know, it was on the news a lot. And, um, and so I ha- always had a kind of hunch that I wanted to go back and try and like, try and address it in some way just because it had been such a part of my life in a way. And then when I when I got to um, the U.S., I went to grad school in San Diego. Um, and I spent some time... When I got here, I actually... Um, I went to the Bay Area and um, had, like, a kind of intense... Um, like, uh, I was able to see, in a way, like, what it was that Bangalore was, like, aspiring to be. And also, like, a lot of what um, folks who had who are developing these like um, tech parks in the tech sector um, have kind of seen and, and uh, lived, lived through. So I was kind of seeing the other side of the picture in a way. And, um, and the foam seemed to be like this very eerie. um, I don't know. It was like the city was saying something like it had like been exhausted and was reaching a, like a new kind of like threshold yeah. Um, yeah. And so I felt like this was something that I that I wanted to address and go back to. And it became a way also for me to like go back to Bangalore. Yeah. Um, and so I worked on it quite slowly for a couple of years. And towards the end of my um, MFA, I decided to kind of really like work on it as my thesis project. Um, okay. And so I shot like here and there over two years. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, I'd be really curious to know a bit more about like what you said about a, sort of seeing the where I guess the Western version of that tech hub that it was aspiring to be. Like, mm. uh, what did that make you feel? Like, did did it feel like a like quite a huge leap, or is it? Did it feel like something that should not have been aspired to in the first place? I'd be interested to <laughs> see what you thought about the two. <laughs> yeah I mean I think a part of me was like feeling like what this is it <laughs> yeah, um, yeah and feeling like well there's so much more um, that you know is um, is part of life in a city like Bangalore that um, you know that I love and um, and I th- that, that I feel is kind of like being pushed out hmm yeah, that something gets um, yeah. like lost in the in the imitation. Yeah, and also like um, I think what I think what like coming here also revealed was um, was also the impossibility, like that what Bangalore is aspiring to sort of like be as a city was actually like it's just not possible. 
Um, yeah. And so, you know, this kind of like slow um, ecological ruin that's like kind of happening from within um, is a symptom of um, of a kind of development that's like, yeah, is not sustainable. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, I guess, it's a form of, a form of industry that's sold as being replicable when it isn't just with the realities of the you know you know like the sort of copy paste i think about something as simple as even just how uber operates in south africa where i'm from and it's just mm-hmm. not it's not the same economy anyway i just i thought it was really interesting because i kind of had the same thing a little bit not the same thing exactly but coming from south africa to the uk or coming to a place like london and um obviously with the colonial legacy that's there sort of seeing where these names came from and seeing where these systems came from and seeing Mm -hmm. how so much stuff had been transported from this one place to the other Mm -hmm. and um how it had really uh, i was gonna say perversified that's definitely not a Mm. word but um you know it had showed itself in a really ugly way in certain parts of south africa and it was just yeah so I think that's really interesting to to move between because I have I haven't been to um to San Francisco or any of the the tech places so mm. it suddenly made me think like oh I wonder because you read so much that almost seems like a fancy like a fancy land right you read <laughs> I read so much about them there's these sort of all powerful companies but I don't actually really think of it as a place that often mm. yeah 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 there's all kinds of um, imaginaries at work like um i also think about um the lake itself uh like the word for the the translation actually the film is kere matu kere which like roughly translates to the lake and the lake but a kere implies also that it's um built so mm. it's actually a constructed um body of water um which lake kind of doesn't um doesn't really carry that connotation yeah um oh. And I think that's really significant and interesting also because it shifts the way people like think about this body of water and what it's supposed to do. Um, and like, you know, what is, what is, um, what is natural to it and what is unnatural to it in a way. But if you, if you think about the word kere, like that already implies that it's um, something that like catches water, that water flows through it. Um, that it's meant to be like a reservoir for for rainwater, basically. Um, Mm. And that it has a kind of functional uh, relationship. So Um, it's not not quite as... um like that that association that people wanted to have and want to protect it for, of it being Mm -hmm. pure nature, is also in Mm -hmm. itself a falsehood. Yeah. 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 I found, um, you know, what's really funny, uh, uh, as a, as a, oh God, you see, I can't even say it. I've literally made films, but I, I started to be like, I, as a filmmaker, <laughs> um, imposter syndrome, it's great. Um, so I, I love it when you're watching a film and you can see, I feel like this was your favorite shot. You know, when you're watching something and you're like, oh, this is the shot that the person who made it got the most out of it. And I think you mm. can tell me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is the shot with the, with, you uh, have a participant holding their cell phone uh, mm. and flicking through pictures of the sunset. So you can tell mm. me if, if I'm wrong, <laughs> but um, I thought it was, I, 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 for people listening, um, it's, you just correct me as I, as I'm going wrong, if I, if I mm. get any of the particulars wrong, but mm. it's, a, it's, there's a, 
uh, I don't want to call it a group of developed buildings sort of mm. set back a bit from this lake um, that are really lovely, you know, like lovely modern looking apartments. And I'm, am I right in saying it's from someone inside that apartment, mm-hmm. that view down onto the lake? Yeah. Um, so you get to see this person showing you the photos on their phone of sunsets over the lake. And there are all these beautiful shots and, and you uh, sort of draw attention to in the text that they, they've been cropped to cut out anything that, you know, the, the people, basically the people or the, the I don't say trash or debris from the construction maybe, but this sort of framing of this beautiful lake. Cause and I, mm. I know that, you know, that wanting the association association with that sort of natural beauty and what it all means. So mm-hmm. yeah. Could you tell me a bit about if that was your favorite shot and mm. just what that symbolized to you in the film? Yeah. Um, yeah. That was a very important shot uh, for me in making the film. Um, and in earlier versions of the film, actually like I opened the film with that sequence um, but later sort of decided to, um, you know, to move it to a later part of the film. But, um, yeah, you know that's really funny. Sh- Sorry, I'll just quickly say I wrote in my notes, in my little notes to myself, I wrote structurally, I appreciate that you didn't put your favorite shot at, right at the top. I know how hard that is. <laughs> that's almost the sign of the deep love. You almost like keep it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting yeah. that you said that. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, I well also because I think if that was to be the first shot I think it like um set a very different tone for the film uh mm-hmm. almost like the the whole film was kind of like an answer to the to that sequence mm-hmm. um which in some ways it is like the rest of the film I think is really like a response to that sequence um yeah. and like responds by you know like going into all of the things that is cropped out in that sequence mm-hmm. um Oh, well, I'll, from, from my, my one audience perspective, I like it where it is because I think also <laughs> from a completely unknowing eye, you, you know, you're, much, you're much more acquainted at that point with what is being cropped out. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, but yeah, that sequence, you know, also was, um, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't expecting to film that. I was actually um, just trying to get um, like a wide, shot from from the apartment I I mean I kind of wanted to see like what the view was like from there I Mm. guess and so I had um I had like asked someone if I could kind of like film from their balcony and she agreed and um as I was filming she uh we got talking and she said oh I have an entire album of like this very angle that you're asking for I could just give you all the pictures that I have yeah. And I was like, oh, like, how many do you have? And she said, oh, I have hundreds. Like, I take pictures every day. Yeah. Um, and so I asked her if she'd be okay with, like, instead of just giving me the pictures, if she'd just show me and I could just film them right there. Yeah. Um, and she agreed. And I, you know, I, like, that sequence also, like, says so much about um, what people desire, um but also like the um the um the amount of like imagination in a way that that goes into like wanting to see this lake that's you know at such a distance um and to only see that mm, mm. um yeah so i thought that it was very important um as a kind of like contrast um within the film and 
for audiences who are not, you know, from this context, um, to be able to enter it in a way that where I'm not kind of just explaining or, um, uh, you know, kind of like being um, like sort of like laying out everything in a way that's like easily digestible, but also is is accessible. Like I think people who see that sequence, like they get it, they get what's yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's and the how I felt. Of what's happening. Yeah, I, you know, I thought it was. I thought it, 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 it almost in a way was like the most universal of the shots in the film because you know it just may it does make you sort of think about every single you know holiday shot where someone sort of you know tilted their camera slightly to the left so it looks like you're the only person at the monument mm-hmm. or you know moving the serviette away from your plate so you get that perfect shot of your food like it was it was really interesting because I think it was that exercise in uh imagination of of mm-hmm. creating something that looks it's specifically to be seen and to be admired um so yeah i thought it was a great a great a great um uh sequence um so i mean to move on to the the shots that are at are at the top of the the film which is these very um sort of beautiful or beautiful Mm. yeah they're beautiful i mean they're beautiful sort of very mesmerizing shots of this foam um Mm -hmm. sort of dancing and moving um, could you tell me a bit about why you, maybe you did choose to open mm. that with, with those shots and sort of what the film represents in the film? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I think I, you know, towards like, as I was kind of figuring out the edit, um, I knew that that had to be like somewhere at the beginning, but also um, that I wanted to wanted it to be at the top of the film, but like by the end of the film, hopefully, um, you know, we've moved to a very different kind of, um, also a different location, but a different way of seeing the lake. So the foam is really at the top because that's just um, how the lake is being framed um, in a more general way these days and and what is drawing people's attention to it. Um, And I I mean, yeah, it's complicated. The, um, The... the relationship that it has to like a certain kind of like visual beauty or like of or that it's mesmerizing but it's also horrifying yeah yeah um i yeah i mean i try to kind of be as close to it as possible also mm. um and from that distance like it you know it really is um it is mesmerizing. I mean, like I wanted to touch it. And also like I read stories of, of uh, people who um, like in the earlier sort of like stages of when the foam showed up, like people would like get out of their vehicles to go and play in this or like touch this foam because it's just so as a form, it's like so inviting. And also like there's a sequence of the foam party that for me was a way to like, I don't know, just, just to talk about like the wanting to touch this thing, even though like, even though we know it's toxic and it needs to be dealt with, but there's, that doesn't take away like wanting to touch it. 
Yeah, that's a really um, interesting um, uh, part of the film. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Was because it, it's um, for for listeners, there there's then a, a sequence of of young people at a at a foam party, and you know playing the foam and dancing the foam and and interacting in the foam, and mm-hmm. it does take a quick you know it takes a few beats. You're like, oh my god, are they in the in the foam? And when you sort of slowly well, for me at least, when you sort of slowly realize that, no, it's a, it's a foam party. It's not just people in this toxic mm-hmm. foam. It's a really clever play on your sort of revulsion because also those foam parties, it's essentially like detergent soap, right? Like mm-hmm. I've been at one of those foam parties and it just smells like disinfectant cleanliness, you know what I mean? So it was quite, it was really interesting. Um, yeah. Contrast. Yeah. Well, I mean, the foam that's in the lake is also like largely detergents and soaps. Um, oh, really? But yeah. of course, like mixed in with all kinds of other things. Yeah. Um, the foam itself is like coming from soap. So um, there's that. But like, I I feel that that party was happening around the same time that I was um, just starting to film stuff, actually. So it was like one of the first things I filmed. And mm. um it was it wasn't happening around the lake but um it was let's say it was upstream from the lake um and I as I was editing I like I knew I wanted to bring that in in some way um again as a way of saying something without necessarily having to spell it out um that it was possible that you know um people could be totally repulsed by and also like totally enthralled by the same thing Mm. um and that also the lake was a place that was um was it was actually really difficult to like focus because it's um there's so many um like it's like there's a lot of gas coming out of the water like there's a lot of methane okay um, and I actually got pretty lightheaded um, when I got close to the water. And so, like, I was also thinking about, like, how do I um, how do I sort of, like, edit in a way that creates or, like, tries to sort of um, get at what it felt like to be around that place. And so, like, some of the editing also was, like, about... I, I wonder if this happens when you watch the film on a smaller screen, but I do think it happens when you watch it on a large screen that it does make you feel a bit floaty um, because there's a lot of shots of like moving, just like slowly moving water. Things are kind of like ungrounded and the foam sequence, the party sequence kind of like interrupts that a little mm-hmm. bit. And so for mm-hmm. me, it was also kind of a way of talking about like um, the way that I would daydream around the lake. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, but, I mean, I guess that would be a good place to sort of talk about. You know, we're moving into this world of festivals online, um, mm. and it's my first sort of festival season uh, online. And to be honest, for me, um, I, uh, I I know it's hard. You know, when when you're watching things on a smaller screen, but um, mm. just for me, having my headphones on with the sound. That was such a treat. I think maybe I would have just as a, you know, again, audience of one, I would have maybe lost that in a bigger cinema. I just was really mm. enjoyed having the audio so close. It was actually really. Mm. Um, so uh, I was just going to ask you, sorry, I'm going to have to cut mm. this out. I'll go through my notes. Um, I was just going to ask. So 
away from the technicalities so i mean i could i love i just i could chat to you all day about the, the why you chose certain shots and i mean they're really they're some really beautiful i just love the the i love i've always loved sort of unfolding movements and just letting things hold so this was was joy for me to watch but mm. um outside of the the technical side of the film i mean is there a what what do you do you hope for the audience to take away from it or is there a thesis of the film or is it a, mm. just a marking how, how do you see the role of the film um hmm. can I think about this for a second yeah of course <laughs> um I mean what I, the reason I was asking if I can think about it is is because I'm also thinking like well I'm trying to imagine like who the audience is hmm yeah um and i think like the film does different things for different audiences obviously um like in a context in bangalore for example um you know the context is is much is much clearer like what's happening is much clearer people don't really need an explanation of like for example what are the contents of the foam or um you know how is this happening like people know uh, you know um, all the kind of structures of neglect that uh, produce this pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, but for audiences elsewhere, maybe that's not so obvious. And um, I mean, I hope that the film kind of raises um, a couple of questions. Um, I, it's always really difficult to like boil a film down to a oh, thesis. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's no pressure to if you don't want to. <laughs> I know it's hard <laughs> when when it yeah. Also, it doesn't have to. You know what I mean? It doesn't um, have to be. I I completely see what you understand what you mean about how it's it will it'll mean different things to different people and in different times and um in different relations. You know what I mean? Like Americans will see it differently if you know coming in from like the tech side and yeah Brits will see it differently I mean I see it differently as a South African you know there's all sorts of yeah um yeah I mean I hope that over like over a certain over the course of the film that if it um manages to kind of like maybe destabilize like um a certain um understanding that we tend to come in with that like um nature is something that's out there and that it that it performs like in a certain way and when it doesn't then there's then it needs saving or it Mm. needs um correcting um and in that process like there's all sorts of assumptions of like uh what is and isn't clean um who is and isn't clean like um questions around like distinctions that get formed between like what development looks like versus what encroachment looks like um uh and the the like i don't know like very persistent like assumption that toxicity or a toxic space equals death and that um that there really isn't a space for life and living um, in proximity with toxicity. Mm. Um, yeah, I hope that the film like like de- like questions all of those kinds of assumptions that I think, um, at least in the spaces around the lake, are definitely um, 
those assumptions kind of drive the kinds of activism and the kinds of policy that get enacted on that space. Thanks again to Sindhu. You can see her film, The Lake and the Lake, in block one of the festival's film program if you are in the UK or have a UK IP address. As you can hear from my conversation there, I really did. I really loved this film. I love Sindhu's eye. And you know what? If we do have to be at home instead of in a cinema, at least you get to put on your best set of headphones and just really dwell in that rich sound design in the film. Up next, I spoke to festival director Chloe Trainer about what they are striving to do at Open City to create a space for sharing, training and dialogue and what it's meant to move the festival online in the middle of a global pandemic. All right, so I have Chloe Trainer here with me. She's the festival director of Open City um, Darkfest. And Chloe, would you just like to tell us a little bit about uh, the festival and your role and how it's been taking the festival online this year? Yeah, so Open City Documentary Festival is um, normally a London-based festival. Um, we happen once a year um, and we are dedicated to um, kind of platforming creative documentary. Um, and we do that in a bunch of different ways that maybe I can talk a bit about. But um, this is our 10th year as a festival, so we're still kind of super young. Um, and we weren't really anticipating that this year would be an online one. So we did have lots of mm. um, fun anniversary things planned that never mm-hmm. quite came to fruition. Um, but as a festival, we're really interested in supporting, um, as I said, creative nonfiction. So we're looking for... Um, work that really has a voice behind it. Um, We're interested in supporting filmmakers who are taking risks, um, but we're also interested in other forms of documentary storytelling within that. So alongside our film programme, we also support audio documentary and we support cross-media storytelling as well. You know, for people who maybe don't get to go to festivals or who don't know the festival world, um, like, I guess there's sort of the pros and cons of bringing it online would be really interesting because like you said, it is a London-based festival that brings a lot of international people in. Um, so while it, while it's sort of sad losing that physical space, I guess there's also a pro now that sort of people from all over the world can take part. Yeah, definitely. So we, we always tried to approach it looking for the positives and seeing it as an mm. opportunity rather than focusing on all the things that we weren't able to do um, because there was nothing we could do to change that part of it yeah um, so what we did was basically try and figure out ways that we could like you say reach people that we weren't able to reach before um, so our film program is geo-blocked to the UK but obviously that's already reaching more people than we would have done with London obviously London's a really expensive city to come to so if you're not living in London it's you know it, that can be a barrier to entry but also we have um, industry delegates from all around the world coming this year who can watch the films from wherever they are so that's really great um, we also have made our industry program which is kind of a core element of what we do which is talks workshops and masterclasses with filmmakers Uh, we've made that 
free and accessible internationally. Um, so that is uh, people can just uh, register in advance and then it's run as a live stream. Um, and the other upside, I suppose, was that the speakers that we were able to invite once we weren't kind of uh, limited by travel budgets or people's schedules to be able to commit that far ahead to coming to speak mm. um, has meant that we've got some really incredible people um, speaking across the events that otherwise might not have been able to join us. Um, so we're really excited about that possibility as well. Um, yeah, that's great. And I mean, how are you feeling about, I think as someone who's sort of so embedded in the documentary world, like, you know, it does seem to be that they're more diverse stories are getting wider audiences. And I, I know that's something that Open City's been behind in its entire, you know, in its in its existence. But um, how how do you how, how do you feel about the doc world at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's obviously positives and negatives. I think it's great to see, um, as you say, how many kind of more diverse stories are getting out there. I think that the move with everything that's gone on to how much people are consuming uh, films online and how much more time people have, I suppose, to watch things that they might not have otherwise um, given attention to is really amazing. And there's been a lot of um, kind of amazing initiatives to platform that kind of work. Um, and also attention given to existing places that have already been doing that. Um, and I think, yeah, as a festival, like you say, we've been kind of interested in that idea of uh, bringing films to London that wouldn't otherwise be seen um, by that audience or even in a cinema context. Um, and so it's really exciting to see uh, those kind of filmmakers really reaching their audiences and kind of building a buzz around their work. Um, I think it's also quite a difficult time, obviously. Um, I think that whenever there is a time of crisis, obviously um, the arts is the thing that suffers first. Um, and I think documentary and nonfiction in particular often yeah. um, is kind of hit by that. And I think, I really hope that the uh, support that's kind of happening at the moment for people who are doing things that are more innovative or taking more risks with how they're telling their stories um, do continue to get support because it is, you know, these films aren't necessarily financially, um, you know, the most rewarding for people who are investing in them, their yeah. art. Um, you know, the tagline of our festival is the art of nonfiction. That's how we think about um, the work that we're supporting. Um, mm. And so it's I think there's a slight anxiety in the air amongst um, kind of makers about what's going to happen next um, yeah. when everything is so precarious. And so, yeah, if I could hope for one thing um, for the next you know, 10 years would be that we actually continue supporting these voices and don't just let them fall by the wayside because they're not necessarily um, the most yeah, financially um viable projects but that what they have to say is really important and that's um you know to me more important than the bottom line of of profit so yeah 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 and I mean um I think in a funny way I think festivals are the the 
I said like the juice to that, but I know every time I felt a bit like defeated or a bit sad about, you know, it is hard to make make things that are not, you know, like a true crime, you know, <laughs> things that are a bit like slower and more thoughtful or, or um, just not what the main, I guess the mainstream audience would want. And then every time I know, I've every time I've been a bit in the dumps, if I go to a festival, it just so reignites that love for the storytelling because you mm. get to see all these brilliant films and see all these interesting people. And I know that's always been a, a good thing for me like for the festival space to go to because it's just completely reinvigorating so um for anyone listening um how can they engage with the festival like what would it so say I'm just a average Joe and I want to watch one of the films and maybe watch a panel like what does the the pathway look like now I guess do they go to the website sort of could you lay that out a bit yeah definitely so the easiest thing to do is to first go to the website which is opencitylondon.com and from there, you can browse the whole program. Um, and each element of the program sits on a different platform, depending upon the best way to engage with it. So for the film program, we have a film streaming platform where we've worked with um, Festival Scope and Shift 72. And so when you go to the film program on our website, when you click book ticket, that will take you through to their website where you can rent the film. Um, films are just mm-hmm. £3 a film, um, or you can buy bundles where it becomes even cheaper if you want to watch more than just one film. Um, for the industry programme, again, you can see all of the sessions on our website and then you can click through um, to reserve your place, which will take you through to a platform called Crowdcast. Um, and it's completely free, but you just need to um, sign up. So you make an account and then they'll send you a reminder an hour before the event goes live, um, which is the other thing to say um, that the industry program is all live. So there won't you won't be able to watch it outside of the live um, stream. But what we're really looking forward to is still having a space for that conversation um, because audiences can obviously interact in the chat and can ask questions live to the panels. Um, So we're hoping to still have that. Something that's really key to Open City in person is those conversations and those dialogues between, um, you know, filmmakers and other filmmakers. And so we're really looking forward to that. Great. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Chloe. Um, And yeah, I'm really looking forward to watching some of the films. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Chloe, Sindhu and the Open City Doc team for collaborating with Storyteller on this episode. I've added all the links you should ever need in the show notes. If you are in the UK, the tickets are so reasonably priced for the festival, you can watch a single film for £3, which is the London coffee, let's be honest. Or you can buy a block of the films, which are like 11 or 12 films for £18. Or you can go the whole hog and buy full access to the lot for £36. You will have access to the films for a certain period of days over the festival. And you can just go through and watch, you know, 10 or 12 films for £18, which is amazing. There are also some fantastic free um, industry events and talks and panels that are amazing that are available to anyone and are free. So everyone inside and outside of the UK, there's just so much available online resources that you would normally, you know, have to be in London for. You'd normally have to pay the price of entry. There's so much free 
online and it's just a fantastic resource especially if you're an aspiring uh, documentary filmmaker you can listen to some incredible people speak on panels you can find storyteller on instagram at storyteller underscore pod and on twitter at storyteller pod one uh, as always, the rates and reviews are very welcome. If you haven't done one yet, I'd really appreciate it. If you do, let me know so I can thank you in the show. You can email me at storytellerpod at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. And um, do send me any suggestions of storytellers you would like to hear on the show. I've had some great suggestions so far and i'm very excited about next week's guest who i will keep a secret for now but will be of great interest to both the uk and south african audience of the show so until next time